So we are, first of all, good morning. Okay. We are continuing in our study of the book of Luke. And um, as I'm sure all of you are aware, we've called this series The Compassionate Conqueror. Uh, because Jesus came to conquer sin and death and to restore God's creation to its rightful owner. And he went about doing so by showing compassion to people who are fallen, to people who are hurting. In Luke's other book, the book of Acts, Peter gives a summation of Jesus' ministry. He did so when he was preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household. He said this about Jesus. He says, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Back in Luke in chapter 4, when Jesus himself was preaching in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he gave his own summation of what he came to do. He did so by reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of slate to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So both Peter and Jesus give a full summation of all that Jesus came to do, including his glorious, uh, the glorious good news of his life, death, and resurrection. We're going to look at today at a particular aspect of Jesus' compassionate and conquering ministry. Jesus said that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Peter mentioned that Jesus was going about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. Today's message, today's passage, puts this aspect of Jesus' compassionate and conquering ministry on full display. Again, this is chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus... He cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. 
and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. May sit down. Here we see the conquering and compassionate Jesus delivering an oppressed soul from the clutches of the kingdom of darkness. Of course, this is not the first time in Luke that we see Jesus giving, going toe-to-toe with his enemy and ours. Chapter 4, right after Jesus was baptized, we see Jesus out in the wilderness going toe-to-toe with Satan himself, who is trying to tempt him into sidestepping his mission of going to the cross. Later in chapter 4, we see Jesus healing and delivering another man with an unclean demon. Let's take a look at that again. We've looked at this before, several weeks ago. It says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, in the passage that Adam preached on last week, it said that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. But it seems that up to now, Jesus has been freeing and forgiving those who are in God's covenant community. As in the case when he delivered the guy in the synagogue and when he delivered Mary Magdalene. In today's passage, we find Jesus ready to take on the forces of darkness in Gentile territory. Now, surely Satan felt that these people rightly belonged to him. They didn't know God. They were a bunch of idol worshipers who belonged in his clutches. But Satan was in for a rude awakening. I'm not the first person to wonder this, but remember to... When they came across the lake, there was a furious storm. I'm not the first to wonder that if this life-threatening storm that was swamping the boat carrying Jesus and his disciples to the other side of Lake Galilee was not the work of Satan himself, in effect saying, how dare you come over to my territory? And I can picture Jesus thinking, if not saying, oh yeah, just watch me. And with a word, he rebuked the winds and the waves, and the storm calmed. Nothing, nothing can stop Jesus, the compassionate conqueror. Today's passage in Luke is not the only place this incident is recorded in the Gospels. There are parallel accounts in Matthew 8, 28 to 35, and in Mark 5, 1 to 20. We know that they're referring to the same incident because of how much the accounts have in common. All three Gospels 
In all three Gospels, the time and the place and the circumstances are the same. It recounts that they, what it, it recounts that they occurred after Jesus and his disciples crossed the lake and endured a horrific storm in which Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. It took place in the region of the Gerasenes on the other side of Lake Galilee, opposite <coughs> Ga <coughs> Galilee and Gentile territory. In all three cases, demons are cast out of human beings and sent into a herd of pigs which rushed down into the sea and drowned. And in each case, the incident is followed by Jesus and his disciples going across the lake to Galilee, back to Galilee, and the incidents that we see right after that, are, which we'll be going over in the weeks to come, where Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. So we're obviously talking about the same thing. All three gospel accounts record a case of horrible demon possession by a legion of demons, which puts the possessed into a psychotic, awful state, living away from society among the tombs and doing major harm to himself. But there's a major difference in the accounts. While Mark's account is practically identical to Luke's, Matthew's is much shorter. He provides much less detail Maybe, I don't know, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, maybe his audience isn't as interested in what's going on in Gentile territory. But another significant difference in Matthew's account might trouble you because Matthew says that there were two demon-possessed men, while Mark and Luke say there was one. Is this a contradiction? What about biblical inerrancy? Let me tell you that all three accounts are true and accurate, but each emphasizes something different with the purposes of the audience they were writing to. It's kind of like when something happens, like there's an accident or there's a scene of the crime and the police interview a bunch of witnesses. Each one might have seen something different, but they all said what they saw. They all said what was true, and it's the job of the police or it's the job of a journalist to put all the pieces together. That, that's part of what I see going on here. The other thing is, is that of the three evangelists, only Matthew was an eyewitness of the event. He actually saw two demon-possessed men being delivered, and that is what he reported. Mark and Luke who had the incident passed on to them, only reported and emphasized what was passed on to them. And that's the part that was most important. Matthew recorded that the two demon-possessed men were delivered by Jesus, and he just left the story right there. Didn't say anything else. Mark and Luke, on the other hand, zeroed in on the man who was not only delivered, but whose life was radically and permanently changed. Let's take a closer look at Luke's recounting of the incident. Jesus steps out of the boat, and he's immediately met by the demon-possessed man. It's not clear whether the man himself is running to Jesus in hopes of being delivered, or if it's the controlling demons who are wanting to challenge Jesus. With the man's voice, the demons cry out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This is almost the exact same resistance that was shown by the demons possessing the man in the synagogue back in chapter 5. He says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Apparently, the kingdom of darkness was fully aware of who Jesus was and what he intended to do. They were fully aware that it was only a matter of time before Jesus would all set all things right and send them into the abyss. It says in Revelation that Satan and his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire or the abyss. They knew that their fate was sealed. But they seemed to be complaining that their time had not yet come. That's why in Matthew's version it says that the demons cried, Have you come to torment me, to torment us before our time? Verse 31 of Luke says that the demons begged Jesus not to command them into the abyss, which is their final destination. What they are doing is putting up resistance because Jesus had already commanded them to depart from the man. What is really diabolical and strange about demon possession, it's not clear if it is the man or the demons who are speaking or if it's both. The demons were controlling him, but there was enough of the man's own personality and volition that he ran to Jesus and fell on his knees, was pleased to be delivered, even while the demons were resisting everything that Jesus was intending to do. Okay, so what happens next? Jesus asked, what's your name? He wasn't talking to the demons. He was talking to the man. He was addressing the question to the man himself because that's what he was interested in. He, didn't, he cared about the man. He didn't care about the demons. But the demons blurted out through the man, Legion! Thus revealing that there were multiple demons possessing the man. In a very bizarre twist, the demons begged Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs instead of sending them straight to hell where they belonged. And even more bizarrely, Jesus grants their request. And a whole herd of about 2,000 pigs rushes down the steep bank and drowns in Lake Galilee. And the demon-possessed man is restored to sanity. And that's basically the story of what happened. But I'd like to zero in on three distinct reactions to the events across Lake Galilee in the land of the Gerasenes. The first reaction is one of fear. The fear of the herdsmen and the townspeople. Now, an amazing miracle has just taken place. There's no denying it. A formerly psychotic and demon-possessed man is suddenly and otherwise inexplicably transformed. He's clothed and in his right mind. This should be cause for awe, wonder, and great rejoicing. But at the same time, some pretty bizarre and frightening things have happened. But I'd venture to say that I think the state of the man in his former condition is a lot more frightening. But as a result of his deliverance, a whole herd of pigs goes mad and rushes down the bank and drowns like lemmings to the sea. So what do the herdsmen and the townspeople zero in on? The herdsmen just lost a major chunk of their livelihood. <laughs> and this demon stuff is rather scary. So instead of embracing the one who has power over demons and can deliver them from all of their fears, the herdsmen and the other townspeople tell Jesus, um, would you please just go away? 
Yeah, it's really wonderful that our town madman, our town lunatic has been restored to sanity. Thank you very much, but we don't want any trouble around here. So if it's all the same to you, would you please just go get back in your boat and go to the other side of the lake? There are people who will intellectually acknowledge the power of God, the creator of the universe who can do all things, and they may even take some comfort in that. But they would rather live their life on their own terms and prefer that God just let them be. They might even say an occasional prayer and might even go to church on Christmas and Easter, maybe even more often. But they would rather live their life on their own terms. Very tragic. Perhaps something more tragic still would be the second reaction. It would be one of indifference and ingratitude. There's something worse than the understandable fear of the herdsmen and the townspeople. Now, I'll admit that this is just conjecture on my part, but I wonder about the second demon-possessed man mentioned in Matthew, but not by Mark or Luke. Matthew clearly and unequivocally states that two men, both equally psychotic and messed up due to severe possession by multiple demons, they were delivered by Jesus. Why isn't the second one even mentioned by Mark or Luke? It makes me think of the incident where Jesus cleansed the ten lepers. They all came to him be begging to be cleansed. Jesus tells them to go to the priests in accordance with Mosaic law. And while they are on their way, they are all miraculously cleansed. And all of them are obviously ecstatic over the miracle. All ten were overjoyed, but nine of them continued on their way, maybe to the priests, maybe to their own homes. And only one of them had the presence of mind and the gratitude to go back to Jesus and thank him and to glorify God. Tend to wonder if the second demon-possessed man mentioned by Matthew just said a tepid and obligatory thank you very much and went on his way. This is scary to think of, but if my conjecture is correct, I wonder about the final state of that second person who was delivered by Jesus of his immediate demon of possession, but was otherwise unaffected and decided to go off and do as he pleased. It makes me think of what Jesus said about some people who were delivered from demons but are otherwise unaffected and ungrateful. We will come to this passage when we get to Luke 11, but this is what he said in verses 24 to 26. He said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. There it goes, then it goes and brings back seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Very scary. Whether my conjecture about the second man is correct or not, it underscores the folly and danger of ingratitude toward God and what he's done in our lives. Romans 1, there's a passage that perhaps some of you are familiar with. 
shows the same danger of folly, of ingratitude and indifference toward God. It says in verse 21 and 22 of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Such fatal ingratitude toward God and all its consequences stands in stark contrast to the third reaction we see in today's passage. The gratitude and transformed life of the once formerly demon-possessed man. The man mentioned in Mark and Luke was not only dramatically and decisively delivered of demons, but he was immediately drawn to Jesus. Let's go back to verses 34 and 35. It says, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, I'm not sure exactly how much time has elapsed, but it must have taken quite a while for the herdsmen to spread the news in the city and in the surrounding countryside and bring everyone back with them. I think it was a matter of hours. Maybe it wasn't until the next day that they came back. It was a long time. And what was this man doing all of this time? He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm guessing that the disciples had some clothes to give to the guy, so he was clothed and in his right mind, and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. We don't know exactly what Jesus was telling him or teaching him, but we can be confident that he was communicating his love for the man, reassuring him, giving him some idea about how he is to live from this point forward. The man was so grateful and drawn to Jesus that he wanted to stay with Jesus. He stayed there at his feet for a long time, perhaps hours, soaking in the words of life coming from Jesus' lips. And when the ungrateful and fearful townspeople wanted to send Jesus away, the man not only asked, but actually pleaded with, begged Jesus to let him come along. And when Jesus tells him no, he still submits to him in joyful obedience. He says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And when he went away, then he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This demon-possessed man realized that, yeah, Jesus is God. Yeah, I'll tell how much God has done for me. I know what Jesus did for me. This man was so grateful, so affected by what Jesus had done for him, he couldn't help but go and tell everyone he met what Jesus had done for him. Okay, so this is a pretty scary passage. I wasn't even looking forward to exegeting this, because it is a scary passage. It could cause us to ask us ask a number of questions. One, 
what exactly is demon possession? To be precise, um, and Wayne Grudem is very helpful here, possession by a demon is not, that word you will not actually find it in the original Greek of your Bible. It says, Wayne Grudem said this, the term demon possession is an unfortunate term that has found its way into some English translations of the Bible, but it's not really reflected in the Greek text. The Greek New Testament can speak of people who, quote, have a demon, or can speak of people who are suffering from demonic influence, but it never uses language to suggest that a demon can actually possess someone. Possession suggests that the person is unable any longer to exercise his or her will and is completely under the domination of the evil spirit. According to Grudem, that's not what it's talking about. But he does go on to note that it seems that this guy, the, the Gerasene demoniac in today's passage, might seem to be possessed in this way. The demon is, man, the guy's completely psychotic. After all, there were enough demons influencing him to send a whole herd of pigs down a cliff to drown in the Sea of Galilee. But as we noted before, the guy did have enough control to run to Jesus and fall on his knees before him. In the case of the man that Jesus delivered at the synagogue at Capernaum, it says that the demon threw the man to the floor before finally coming out of, at the command of Jesus. In Luke 13, when Jesus is confronted for healing a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years on the Sabbath, he replied, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, he loosed from the bond, from this bond on the Sabbath day? So, no, demons can't possess someone, but they can do some serious stuff. What, maybe it's a matter of semantics, but whether you want to use the term possessed by a demon or having a demon, there are cases of people who are very strongly influenced and to a certain degree held captive by forces of evil. Now, this looks really scary. This might cause you as a Christian to ask the following question. Is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon? Whether you use the word possession or captivity or even just having a demon, let me state emphatically that the answer is a resounding no. Christians belong to Jesus. No demon can take up residence in a Christian because that real estate is already owned and occupied by someone else. Christians are the exclusive property of Jesus because he purchased them by his blood. Christians have the Holy Spirit resident within them. That is, they have the God of the universe himself within them. There's not room for anybody else. The Apostle John reassures us in 1 John 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit resident within you. 
so you have nothing to fear. Well, if that's the case, the third question might be, then what can the devil and his demons do, if anything, to a Christian? Well, there are, unfortunately, there are a lot of things that the forces of darkness can try to do to us. I'll list several. They can lie to us. They can tempt us. They can accuse us. They can try to frighten us. They can try to take our eyes off of Jesus. They can whisper unbelief in our ears. They can be persistent in doing so to the point of making us anxious or depressed. They can try to shake our confidence in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And the last thing I could do is go back to the beginning of the list. They lie. They lie. They lie. Jesus said of his adversary, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do any of these lies sound familiar? This little sin won't hurt. And after you've listened to that one, there you go, you did it now. How can you call yourself a Christian? Another one? Yes, Jesus died for sins, but not necessarily yours. And certainly not that sin. Even Jesus has his limits. He can't forgive that. Or you have committed the unpardonable sin. Or things are not going to get better. They're only going to get worse. You might as well give up. Why should the God of the universe care about you? He has more important things to tend to. Or, man, you are really messed up. Normal Christians don't go through stuff like you do. Your case is unique and hopeless. Or if your Christian friends knew the real you, they would scorn and reject you for the hypocrite that you are. Do any of those sound familiar? So what do we do? The fourth question, what do Christians do? How do we counter such wicked and hateful onslaughts from the enemy? All right, so how do you counter the onslaughts of the enemy? First of all, fear not because Jesus has your back. He is our shield against the enemy's hateful darts. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Secondly, do what Jesus did when he was confronted by the enemy. When tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? He responded with truth. He kept saying, it is written. 
and he quoted a key verse of scripture that he had hidden within his heart. So hide the word of God in your heart and be ready to respond with the truth of God's word when you are accused, when you're lied to, when you're tempted, when you're doubting, when you're anxious or depressed, saying, it is written, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. It is written, God will keep me strong till the end so that I will be found blameless on the day of Christ Jesus my Lord. It is written, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Hide the word of God in your heart and be ready to remind yourself of the truth of God's word. Again, fear not. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You are not alone. The enemy tries to do this to all Christians. Those onslaughts, those fears, those accusations, they're not unique to you. All Christians go through this. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he said, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And this is the most reassuring part. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. It can seem very scary when you hear that lion roar. But Jesus has detoothed him. He tries to scare and harass all Christians, but he can only go so far. Jesus has your back. After you've suffered a little while, our faithful God will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Take that to the bank. Next, stand firm on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. No matter what your thoughts or feelings are otherwise telling you, In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, it's a classic passage on fighting the good fight of faith. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as, for your, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
preach the gospel to yourself daily, always. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith and which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. They're all multiple faceted ways of describing the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, and the power that stands behind it. The enemy cannot endure truth, and he is no match for the power of God that is resident within us and available to us. So in conclusion, this can be a strange and scary topic that some of us would rather not talk about. But we should not fear. Again, Jesus has your back. We should be sober-minded, as Peter said. We should acknowledge that we do have an enemy, but neither should we be obsessed with him. I love the preface in to the screw tape letters where C.S. Lewis said, there are two equal and opposite errors which our race can, to which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, don't go looking for the devil under every bush. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But we should also be alert and not be ignorant of the schemes of our enemy. Whenever he ventures to tempt us, to accuse us, lie to us, try to attack us, the best thing for us to do is to keep our eyes on Jesus, to continue to live by the truth of the gospel, confident in the God who saved us, confident that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, that he will keep us strong to the end so that we will be found blameless on the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, strong defender of our weary heart, our sword to fight the cruel deceiver and our shield against his hateful darts. Lord, we thank you that we need not fear because we belong to you. Lord, implant in us again and again the truth of your gospel, of your love for us, that we belong to you and nothing can snatch us out of your hand. May we walk in that glorious truth. In Jesus' name, amen.